The African fashion industry is filled with incredibly talented professionals. However, there is a disparity between fashion education on the continent and the wider international scene. At the Council for International African Fashion Education, we are passionate about advancing the development and innovation of fashion education in Africa. Hello, welcome to the CF podcast. On the show, you'll hear advice, masterclasses and interviews with a range of industry insiders, from business executives and academics to creatives and many more. Hi there, just a quick note before we head into the episode. Unfortunately, there were a few audio issues during the recording, but we hope you enjoy the conversation. In this episode, our host, Frederica Brooksworth, interviews Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas. Natasha is now a professor specialising within marketing and sustainable business, and she's previously been a fashion designer for a children's wear brand. The two talk about everything from making the transition to work within academia and also fashion research. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for joining me today on another episode. As I mentioned, like we're so excited to have you on board, especially someone who's actually an educator. And, you know, at your level, being a professor, I believe that there's so much that we can all learn from. So what I'm going to do is that I'm not going to introduce you. I'm going to allow you to take your time to introduce yourself and just to tell everyone, like, who you are and what you do. So who is Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas? Oh, thank you, Frederica. And thank you for the invitation to join you. I'm very excited for the podcast too. So I'm Professor Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas. I'm a professor of marketing and sustainable business based at the British School of Fashion in Glasgow Caledonian University's London campus. I'd like to think that I've sort of lived my whole life in fashion. So my interest in fashion education really came from when I educated myself because I wanted to make clothes. So I think first and foremost, I'm a maker. And in my past um, educational roles, I have actually taught design, but I moved into sort of marketing and communications. And I got really fascinated, um, particularly with the sort of global aspects of fashion and fashion marketing. And also through my life experiences, um, living in Hong Kong and then in New York State, got increasingly interested in the area of sustainable fashion. So that's really where my focus has taken me from being a maker for myself, having um, a small label and a, a luxury children's wear brand with friends, into education as many um, you know, industry people do, you get invited in to teach. So I worked um, in the London College of Fashion, trained in education, so I took my teacher training qualification. And then after a few years, studied for a doctorate in education. And I focused on intercultural communication education because I was really, really interested with how, especially in the creative areas, how we understand things like creativity, how we value skills of making, for example, and design. Um, and I brought all of those things together in my role, which encompasses research uh, and teaching and a good deal of knowledge exchange as well. Oh, I love that. And I'm just so glad that you actually mentioned like being a you know a maker and a designer because we're actually going to get to another question on that in the moment but before we move on to that question I would love for us to just talk briefly about your journey as a professor and could you give an overview of what your role um, as a fashion professor actually involves and what a day-to-day or even what a week looks like being a fashion professor. Thank you well the role of Professor of Marketing and Sustainable Business in the British School of Fashion is actually a new role. It was um, developed a couple of years ago and it was really developed to enhance the area of research, um, teaching and knowledge exchange around sustainable fashion. And one of the things that I was tasked with doing was developing a new postgraduate module in sustainable luxury. So the first part, when I, as I joined the British School of Fashion, I spent a lot of time researching um, and touching base, making connections with industry partners, talking to people like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, talking to people like Redress, who are a, a, a textile waste NGO in Hong Kong, talking to people in other universities about you know, what the hot topics are, what the key challenges are, um, and how we can best address them. And from my own experience teaching sustainability, 
you actually need to think of different ways of teaching, different ways of engaging students and empowering them to understand the sort of agency they may have, the, the decisions that they may be in the position to make and to be able to make informed uh, choices um, around you know, sustainability. Because fashion system is an enormous, huge and complex one. And sometimes as an individual, we don't feel that we can make, um, you know, have that much impact. But I decided for myself, and this role is kind of testament to that, that actually by working in fashion education, you can influence and empower the industry through the graduates that you interact with and through the industries you interact with. So I spent a lot of time thinking about teaching and developing um, what I hope are engaging teaching and learning activities. I also am involved in research and the most recent piece of research I've been working on um, with a colleague, uh, Dr. Dina Khalifa, has been around the attitude behavior gap in sustainable sort of um, purchasing, specifically for people who are really interested and, in, and fashion involved. So for people who are informed about fashion, who are keen on sustainability, what are the sort of barriers and enablers for them in terms of, you know, moving into a more sustainable fashion system? And it's been really fascinating because we undertook um, a series of researches sort of just before the, the pandemic lockdowns came around London Fashion Week, and then talked to some key industry figures during that period of lockdown. And it's been really interesting um, seeing how people's you know, thoughts and responses to the system, the types of things people were talking about, about how the system needed to change. And then now we're sort of, as we're emerging sort of from the other side of the pandemic, seeing actually whether any of these sort of changes are being seen um, in the industry. So that's sort of, I suppose, the teaching research, and then also, as I said, being involved with other organizations. So one of the um, people that we partnered with early on was the British Beauty Council. We held a really fascinating um, sort of industry closed panel that was around beauty and inclusivity. Uh, and that actually helped inform them in writing a report about inclusivity in the beauty industry. So it's really, you know, balancing each of those things. And I've consider myself a lifelong learner. I'm extremely curious about things, which I think is very helpful um, as an academic anyway, but also as someone in marketing. So I'm always sort of, you know, trying to find out what the next thing is, what the latest thing is, but also, and this I think comes from being a maker, I'm really interested in cultural heritage and in sort of those artisanal skills. And I've also, um, you know, I spent a, a, a long period living in Asia and I've been really fascinated with the Chinese fashion system as well. And looking at how sort of ideas um, and techniques from Chinese fashion, how they sort of interact with the global fashion system. So I think that probably covers quite a few of the aspects that I do. At the moment, I've been teaching online a lot. I'm ready to get back on campus, which will be happening shortly. Um, but I think what's great working in fashion education is, you know, you see lots of the debates as they're emerging. You get to often look at them, you know, with a different lens and you get invited to share your um, opinions on on them. So I recently wrote an article uh, published in The Conversation actually talking about this very thing about the role of fashion education in delivering and developing a sustainable fashion industry. So I think, you know, you're in a really um, privileged position working in fashion education. The students are delightful. They're the, the they are the new industry coming through and it's really, um, I feel very fortunate and blessed to have opportunities to, to interact with them. I love that, especially that point where you say like the students, they are the industry. It's actually true. They are the new industry coming through. And thank you so much for sharing that and also shedding light on what you do, because I think that not many people really understand what educators do. And I guess it's because when it comes to fashion education, this side of the industry isn't really publicized. So it's not like fashion stylists where there are documentaries on fashion stylists or there are documentaries on um, makeup artists or on footwear designers and so forth. So this whole area of people actually, you know, given the opportunity and platform to really discuss what they do, I think it really helps people to understand, you know, why we do what we do and also the importance of things as well. So thank you so much, Natasha, for sharing that.
So going back to um, the discussion, you mentioned that, you know, you were previously um, a maker and I know that you had your brand um, Miss Fleur and, you know, it was an award-winning luxury children's wear brand. So what made you actually transition into academia? I know you said that you basically began educating yourself, but what made you actually take this sort of like leap of faith and pivot into going into academia and how did you actually go about doing this? Yeah, that's a really good question. So as I said, I've always been a maker. And even though, uh, I mean, my undergraduate degree was in economics, but alongside that, I was making things. And I always had small sort of little startup businesses, whether that was something um, selling in a kind of Greenwich market on a Sunday, or whether that was working for private clients and making wedding dresses. Um, and then I also, I did a lot of dressmaking when my children were very young. Um, it's dressmaking for for private clients is such a it's such a flexible way to work. It's a really good way to sort of be involved in the fashion industry, but a bit, you know, it's small scale and, and under your control. And then actually I, I made friends, um, you know, with, with a neighbor who actually had spotted me walking down the street wearing a really nice long A-line leopard print skirt, which I'd inherited from my Nana. And she spotted me wearing this and some trainers and decided she had to get to know me. And she was um, Tiffany oh, Lucy, and she's a graduate of the RCA and a knitwear designer. So we made friends um, and we both had, it was when we had uh, very small children and actually it was her idea to, to launch a children's wear label. And we got a couple of other friends involved um, who were uh, Carolyn Kluwer, who was a knitwear designer as well. And our friend Carol McKilwin, who'd been a stylist. And because uh, three of us had small children, so it seemed sort of natural. And, and at the time, um, children's wear was, was not super exciting. And we really liked the idea of taking luxury fabrics and sort of being quite playful with them. So we'd have dresses where we were combining, um, you know, silk with denim, we had some really nice prints. We, you know, it was the early days of doing sort of, you know, Photoshop designs. So we sort of have, you know, cute printed t-shirts, et cetera. Um, but also having a really nice vision and being, you know, having a really playful and fashion forward vision for children so that was you know it was super exciting um, but I think as well at the back of my mind and probably because I'm you know a, a lifelong learner I was always you know fascinated in teaching and in education so I actually asked um, you know where I'd studied my fashion I know it is city and guilds uh, in fashion and I asked if I could just you know have a go at teaching and practice and do a class and uh, they said yes kindly so I was asked to teach people how to sew buttons and how to make buttonholes on the sewing machine I really distinctly remember this I spent so long preparing I learned like the whole history of buttons I learned the whole you know history of you know hand sewn buttonholes machine buttonholes I made you know endless resources and handouts for this it was probably like the best planned lesson ever uh, in my head anyway. uh, and I had to go and I just loved it and I just found it really um I think there's something so nice about working with your hands and there's something really nice about sharing a skill with people and seeing how people learn and appreciate that. So it kind of gave me the idea that I would like to go into education, but I really wanted to do it, you know, um, in a sense, properly and, and well-informed. So I actually studied for, a, you know, postgraduate, I did a full-time postgraduate certificate in education so that I could get involved in the, you know, understanding the psychology of education um, and all of the different debates around it, which I really appreciated. And as part of that, I had a placement, which were, I was lucky enough to have at London College of Fashion. So then, you know, I was in, invited in as a, you know, placement student, but also I got offered some extra teaching. And then I was at that point where several people, you know, might recognize when you're doing your own business and you're also doing a bit of teaching and you're trying to do both of them at the same time. And I think because we'd had our business through a period where our children were getting older, I think naturally it just came to a point where, you know, it was kind of decision-making time for all of us. And I think, you know, one of the things when we had our business is we were extremely creative and we really, uh, you know, we were very popular. We got really nice editorial, but I think we weren't terribly good at sort of being exploited to do so we didn't make lots of money so I think it's always that difficult thing isn't it because we had our products I mean we're a bit ahead of our time we had our products made in the UK so they were locally made we were using really quality fabrics you know like silks and really high 
quality jerseys and things that we'd get custom made. So, you know, it was just very difficult to get those margins. So we kind of decided, I think it was either a point of maybe diluting what we were doing or just saying, you know, we've done what we wanted to do. We've sold, you know, we sold in the Comrade store. We sold in sort of shop stores like Caramel. We'd sold in the places we wanted to sell. We'd had magazine covers and editorial that we were really proud of. We'd won some awards. And I think we just all kind of mutually decided that maybe it was time, you know, that had run its course. Um, yeah. And that's, and that was that. And, you know, and it, I think it, I think to be honest, education, can, teaching can be all encompassing. So actually, I think it would have been hard for me to, you know, to carry on doing both. But it's, it is, I mean, again, another thing about teaching fashion is if you're teaching things like design, you can also take that experience and that pleasure from, from helping students with their kind of own personal design journey. Wow, that's so interesting. And I think what I really love, there were so many quite things that I really picked up from it. Firstly, I think, you know, it seems like you had an amazing journey and experience with actually with the brand, because considering even within that time period, you had amazing editorial. Again, um, you won awards, which isn't like that's no easy feat because not many people do actually experience that, especially now we know it's really difficult. So that was good. And the fact that you also had this mutual understanding with your partner that, you know, okay you know we've done a lot for the brand and we feel like now we need to get to a point where maybe let's just put it aside and then pursue other things I think being able to work with someone where you can understand both of you can actually understand each other and respect each other's decisions is actually really good so it also shows that as partners you also had really good understanding and communication between um, each other and then finally what I really I was laughing when you mentioned that you started actually like studying about the history of buttons I was like that's dedication like for me that is honestly brilliant but it's, it's like someone may think like why would you do that but it's so important especially if you're working in a certain field it's so important to actually be able to go and study the history of something to have a good understanding as to why things exist or why they should be used and how they should be used as well so that really stood out and for anyone listening I mean if you're looking to get into design or if you're looking to get into I don't know um, supply chain management learn about machines for instance you know what I mean like Go and learn about the history of like really core cool fundamental things because having a core cool understanding is so imperative. I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I was in the States, I was teaching um, students and sort of half of the program were design focus and half of them were merchandising focus. But I insisted that the merchandising, you know, pathway students all learn to sew at least one garment. And even though at the beginning, a lot of them didn't really, they maybe didn't see the point, they didn't really understand why they were doing it. Um, by the end of actually, you know, planning a pattern, cutting it out, putting it together with your own hands. And then we had a fashion show to, to show off the, the results of that, going through that whole process. And I think it really helped the merchandising students understand about materials. It helped them understand that it's actually quite hard to make garments. It's hard to make them look good. Um, and I think they really picked up a, an understanding of that. So absolutely, I endorse what, what you just said. It's really good to understand a process, even if you're not going to be doing that, you know, fundamentally in your job role but it's really good to understand those things and and I mean fashion is is I suppose so mystified because we often see it just as a sort of image maybe on a screen so for a lot of people they don't really if they're not a maker themselves they haven't really got that understanding and I think especially at the luxury level it's so important to know you know what is a good fabric what is a good seam finish even what's a great buttonhole you know what should a a well-made garment look like and feel like and I think you know you get a lot of that appreciation if you actually you know make things yourself and I mean I think for me because one of my roots into fashion was history of fashion I mean I'm now I'm the vice chair of the costume society in the UK I've always sort of had a fascination with the history of fashion and you know and, and fashion is so connected with technology and you're right nowadays we often think about technology as being digital but actually even things like the sewing machine revolutionized you know making and production so there's so many different advancements through fashion that you know rely and and equally there are still 
you know, practices and, and processes that are hundreds of years old that are still, you know, being practiced around the world. Um, and actually that sort of heritage and artisanship is something that's really, you know, needs to be protected and, and promoted. And is one of the things, it's one of the aspects of sustainability that I'm really keen on, that kind of cultural heritage aspect that, that a sort of technique or a process, um, you know, that, that's indigenous to a population or to a part of the world and that we kind of protect that and celebrate that and I think the fashion industry has been very good at appropriating those types of things but I think we're in a much better position now to appreciate them and, and promote them and, and to recognize them. So do you know what recently Natasha I've had so many people ask like oh actually I'm considering going into fashion education I'm considering becoming a lecturer but like how do I do it so I wanted especially someone like you who you've literally reached like I would say the peak of your career like at professorship now do you have any advice or just like some any tips for anyone who would want to sort of like break into this space of being an educator Absolutely. Yeah. Great question. I think one of the things that fashion industry, um, fashion education loves is bringing industry into the classroom. So if you, you know, have an opportunity to maybe to deliver a guest lecture, maybe think what you could offer to some, you know, young fashion professionals. So you could offer a, a kind of a mentoring or, or something like that. So I think, you know, reaching out to fashion schools, um, if you don't have connections yourself but you know if you're if you're in a position in a business or you've got experience to share that's so important for students if you have a business you can sometimes sponsor a project so you might do a live industry project with a group of students and that would kind of bring you you know into the classroom in that sense if you decide you really like it i mean i can't recommend highly enough actually being educated as as an educator but I mean, one of the things that really stuck with me from my teacher training, which was a really long time ago now, is to be yourself as an educator. I mean, to a certain degree, to a certain extent, you we could think about teaching as being a bit of a performance. So we have to kind of put on a little bit of a persona. But I think the thing that um, I've always respected in other educators is, is when someone brings their sort of genuine and authentic self into that classroom space. And I've also always... Um, I haven't been hierarchical about education. I've actually, when my children were small, I worked at the, the primary school breakfast club before school. Then I went to teach um, at an FE college. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've done everything I've done from, you know, primary and preschool I've I used to make um, fancy dress costumes for the children's nursery to help pay the nursery fees so I've been in, involved Aww. with education at every level um, you know and up to supervising and you know working with you know doctoral students and I actually you know I think there's value in every level of education and I think um, you know sometimes there's an emphasis on you know a, a real hierarchy but I also think within fashion that there's something that you know I've written about and, and challenge which I think is the hierarchy within the discipline so we often see the design and it's just as you said the, the visual images that come out you know a runway image or you know catwalk look often is given a sort of is privileged in the fashion system whereas you know making and, and marketing and those types of um, areas are not really seen as being creative and it's one of the sort of um, you know, little bugbears that I have, because actually to, to have a successful and a responsible and a sustainable business, you need to be creative, um, to, you, know, you need to be innovative. It's sometimes a different skill set, but I think it's it's often, you know, undervalued within fashion. Um, and also, I think we have an idea that fashion designers are these sort of individual creative geniuses, whereas actually, you know, you'll be aware that, that no fashion label is one person, yeah. apart from maybe right at the beginning, and you're always going to need to work with other people. And you really need, you know, lots of the most successful fashion houses. It's because you've got a mixture of skills coming together. It's often with a, you know, a partnership where you've got someone's the designer and someone's the sort of marketing brains. And you do need all of those skills. It's difficult for one person to be able to do all of those things. So I think, again, within fashion education you know we need um, to recognize you know the skills and the creativity that go into that and I think at the moment especially with all the challenges the fashion industry has around you know sustainability and ethical business 
more than ever that kind of business education side is really you know needs to be opened up to a, to a lot of these different areas and to bring that in thank you so much for that natasha and again you mentioned something which is just so 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 key when you said that when it comes to a fashion business, I mean, as a startup, it's usually like you're everything. So you are customer service, you are the accountant, you're like the lawyer and so forth. But for most successful businesses that we see in the industry, there are usually like two people at the top who lead the business. So you have like the designer or the creative director. And then you always have the person who's maybe like the marketing brain or it could be like the business um the, maybe like the business manager but you always have those two people working together to ensure that the business honestly is a success so i really thank you for um sharing those really interesting points with us we hope you're enjoying the episode so far to find out more about cf please head over to our website at www.cf.org that's www.ciafe.org. Over there, you'll be able to find links to our social media accounts on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you. So now moving on to, um, you know, our next question. So one of your areas, you know, of expertise is around creative pedagogy. So can you actually tell us what creative pedagogy is? Excellent. Good question. Well, I think, you know, one of the things when I started um, looking into doing a doctorate, I was super fascinated because I was working in London and I was teaching in classrooms that were really international. Um, and I kind of observed that I think in a sense from the institution side, people were almost trying to put students into boxes and they were trying to, you know, decide who was creative or not creative or how people, you know, they were interpreting people's behaviours, you know, in line with their, I suppose, their nationality or where they'd come from. And I thought it was really strange to me. And I think maybe that's because I grew up in London and London's so multicultural. Um, and it's one of the things that I really love about being in London. And I've never really thought, I, I tend to think that people are more the same than they are different um, and so I was really interested in that and so when I went to study um, you know I did a doctorate in education with Durham University and I did it at distance and I so I was living in Hong Kong while I was studying which was really a great experience for me because I was teaching in Hong Kong and I was living in a in a culture where I was now a minority and very visibly um, not Chinese so I had some really funny experiences like you know I was almost like the Western person, you know, and, and the white face that that's brought into the classroom to give this certain perspective. So I, I kind of got that experience of being a bit exoticized, um, which I think often happens, you know, we often do that to other cultures. And I was so interested in sort of learning about the psychology, you know, behind all of these things. So my doctorate focused on looking at aspects of creativity in different cultures and how how you were brought up the communities you're brought up in how that influences your ideas around creativity and at a very fundamental level uh, one of the big differences um, you know that's reported is between collective and individualistic societies and how because of the way that their ideas of creativity have developed they kind of have a, a different ideas about creatives so very very broad brushstrokes it was thinking about for example in generally in western um, cultures we have a history you know that, that's a sort of judeo-christian history and we tend to think of you know god the creator uh you know and the, the world being created in in six days etc um so everything coming from nothing whereas lots of eastern cultures believe that the earth actually everything already exists and so you don't have that kind of idea of the novelty and it really comes through creative practice in I suppose the importance you put on novelty and change. So I would say that as it goes for fashion, especially, you know, novelty, change and revolution is one of the things that's kind of really associated a lot, I think, with Western system. And, you know, traditionally in, the, in a more um, in a non-Western system, we've actually had more of evolution and just really also really interesting things about how we think about the body and clothes. So if you think about lots of, um, you know, clothing, you know, like a, kimono or you know hanfu clothing that lots of 
rectangles used, lots of space around the body, whereas lots of Western things tailoring, very fitted. I mean, it's just su super fascinating to me. So it was sort of tracing back how all of these things um, came into, you know, into our understandings of creativity, how that then comes through products, but also in terms of our skills. So I would say, for example, you know, London somewhere that's known for its art schools and it's known for being um, quite revolutionary. I and mean, if you think back to sort of punk and things. And so the idea of, of experimentation, of ripping things up and sort of having a go, whereas often in maybe Eastern cultures, there's a real respect for skill and, you know, something being perfect you know really a perfection and in a creative education those ideas can clash because if you want your students to come in sort of tear things up make a bit of a mess and be experimental but for them they're feeling like they they want to do something you know, if you think of something like calligraphy you've got to practice for you know years and years to have the most beautiful you know skills so therefore that idea of just ripping things up and making a mess might seem really alien and it's really important when we look at creative education because of that whole do we value the process or do we value the product and that's yeah. a really interesting conversation and it's not something that we, I think we've really resolved because even you know in the UK we talk a lot about the process being important but we still tend to you know I don't know, value the, the, the end results. If someone has a beautiful end result, a beautiful drawing or a beautiful garment, that still you know, tends to get the credit. Whereas someone, you know, we're not really, we haven't really found a good way to assess that kind of creative process, I don't think. And I think that sort of limits people in a sense because we're all afraid of, of making mistakes or of taking risks. But then I think beyond that, it's then thinking about, so for example, I mentioned teaching for you know, education for sustainability. It's actually thinking, how do we teach in different ways? How do we, for me, it's all about shifting the power. How do you take the power away? You know, how as a teacher, an educator, how do you allow someone to take power in this in the teaching space? How do you, you know, go away from this idea that you're just pouring your knowledge into someone else's head? How do you make space for them to experiment um, and to rehearse arguments? And so I think, you know, lots of the ways that I've thought about doing that is just to have alternative ways of assessment. So I mean, everyone's doing it now, but just things like, you know, making a video about something, writing a blog about something, as opposed to just having, you know, an exam, a test or, or an essay. Um, so I think it's, it's all of those things wrapped up together, but you can see probably I'm rambling a bit, but there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And I think it's that it's really paying attention to what do you want to get out of this? What skills and attributes and qualities would you like students to be able to have by the end of an assignment? What's the best way for them to get there? How do you make a safe space for them to explore and play and make mistakes, but actually in a safe enough sort of way that, that you know, we get there in the end and they can trust you? So I think for a lot of a lot of us, myself included, you know, we're risk averse and we don't want to be that experimental, but, but we know that actually by letting go and being experimental, that's when we get the most interesting, um, you know, that's when we get the most interesting results. Exactly, you know, really amazing. And you know what, it, it ties in so well with um, the next question that I was actually going to ask you. So I wanna know, like from just your own personal experiences is what are some innovative teaching approaches that you wish were more widely adopted in fashion education? That's a great question. I think, I mean, one of the things that I did years ago when I worked at London College of Fashion, I had a really lovely um, boss and mentor, Sue Alston. And we actually used to do really interesting pattern cutting things with the students of just what can you do with a square? What can you do with a triangle? What can you do with a circle? It was a really interesting way of getting students to engage from 2D to 3D. And we also used to do a kind of charity shop challenge, which was bringing in some old garments, taking them apart and putting them together, but in a very high fashion way. Now, obviously at the moment, that's you know, kind of all the rage or this sort of upcycling and re reconstruction but I think you know at that time that was quite a, a revolutionary and a, and a new approach and also really a challenge because in a sense it's easier to take a whole roll of fabric and create something than it is to actually disassemble a garment into its constituent pieces and, and remake it but that's a you know a really interesting challenge so things like that I think are, are, are interesting 
one of the things that I did myself and I, I like when other people do is actually using the you know the capabilities of the internet to bring communities of students together so I did that with um, an international fashion panel between London, Hong Kong, Singapore and Vietnam so bringing fashion business and marketing students together to work on sort of um, you know aligned projects actually looking at global fashion marketing getting students to share their experiences and I suppose um, helping them recognize their cultural capital so instead you know often say in the UK or Europe we're, we're extremely you know Europe centric and our ideas of other parts of the world often come you know maybe from the, the television or popular culture but to get students to actually engage with students in other parts of the world to realize that they probably have really similar interests and aspirations but there might be real differences in terms of retail or in terms of you know you mentioned supply chain um, or even just in aesthetics simple things like the weather, uh, you know, all of those types of things. So it's really interesting, I think, when you can build those sort of communities of practice that are enabled uh, by the internet. And then, I mean, in a sense, I feel like blogging went out of fashion and I feel like it's coming back in again, but actually getting someone to have, you know, reflect on their learning and to use a blog to record their learning journey is a really interesting way for students to, you know, I suppose to look inside themselves, but also to be building a commentary and building an, an, an online identity and to be, you know, creating content, which is one of the really kind of important things um, in fashion now. But just to have that sort of perspective, to have an opinion is, is really interesting. So I think there are a few of the um, things. And then one of the areas that I'm really interested in is case study teaching. So where you are examining, you know, a situation. So you're looking at someone, let's say we're going to look at Stella McCartney, you know, what are the challenges that she had through setting up her business? What are the decisions she made? And what I really like about case study teaching is it isn't about like what happened or didn't happen. It's kind of what could have happened. What are the choices? Um, and it's, I think they're really um, empowering for students because they can really rehearse those roles. You know, imagine if you were the marketing director in this situation, what would you say? That kind of thing. So I really, um, that's an area that I've really enjoyed working with. And specifically, um, I'm now the editor in chief of the Bloomsbury Fashion Business Case Study. So it's something that I'm really hoping to develop even more, especially with that global perspective, because as I, you know, alluded to, fashion might be we've got threads that connect us globally but also we've got some really different and distinct contexts in different parts of the world and it's really important that we understand those wow i feel like we're going to need you to do another episode talking about your experience where you had your students based in the uk and then you did this collaboration with students based in hong kong and then vietnam because i feel like you know we especially you know when it comes to African fashion education, there's this, there's been a discussion with regards to having students connect. And we know that traveling isn't as easy, it's expensive. Again, people don't realize how huge the continent is. I mean, it's easier to get from Ghana to um, the UK than it is to actually travel to like some parts of Southern Africa, for instance. So um, I think, yeah, we're definitely gonna need you. And Natasha, I feel like, have you seen these questions? Because I was literally just about to ask you about your position as editor-in-chief at Bloomsbury Fashion Business Case Studies. So when you were talking about, well, you know, this is, I'm also like, you know, an editor at Bloomsbury. I was like, is Natasha looking at my questions at the moment? So I feel like we're so aligned right now, um, which is really, really incredible. So this conversation is just rolling on really, really well. So this question that I wanted to ask you, Natasha, was alongside your role as a prof um, professor, you're, of course, the um, editor-in-chief for Bloomsbury Fashion Business Case Studies. So can you tell us more about what your role entails, but also about Bloomsbury and Fashion Business Case Studies as well? Yeah, so Bloomsbury is, you know, a big fashion platform, a big fashion publisher, and they have a digital platform with, with various different databases, one of which is the Bloomsbury Fashion Business Cases. And this was developed a few years ago now. I mean, it's still relatively recent, but it was really to fill a gap in the market that I had felt, which is case studies on fashion businesses that are written by fashion insiders and fashion academics. Because of course, fashion is a fascinating topic and there are many 
many case studies on if you think about someone like Zara and their supply chain, you know, uh, innovations, etc. But they're often not written by people who really truly understand fashion. And so for me as an educator, I often felt there was something missing. There might be some great, I don't know, maybe business and strategy pieces, but that but for often the fashion product, for example, was missing. So it was it was developed as that, and I started as a regional editor, um, and then was you know so kindly invited to become the editor in chief when the founding editor in chief stepped down from that role. So really, one of the things that I see my role as editor in chief is expanding the collection, um, expanding its reach, and expanding the content to be much more inclusive of different parts of the world because we know again with in education we get the same the same old stories the same old faces coming round and round again and that's important and you know everybody needs to know about these but actually it's really important that we open up that space and one of the you know and it slightly ties to what you were just talking about about the sort of um, students coming together as well it's the concept of sort of internationalizing at home how do you, wherever you are in the world, get access and experience to other parts of the world without actually having to go there yourself? So looking at the case studies, they're always they're based on mostly real instances and incidents that have happened. They're either they're often looking at a sort of um, a challenging situation or an interesting opportunity, and they're always about making decisions. So they offer uh, students the opportunity to rehearse and role play within a business perspective. Uh, so we have, you know, a whole range of hundreds of cases now. They're at different lengths um, and depending on which stage of education you're at. And what's really great as well is not only that they're written by sort of fashion insiders, but they also come with teaching notes. So if you're new to education, you can kind of pick up the case. You've got the case that the students would read and you've also got suggested activities um, and assessment tasks. So it kind of makes it a little bit simpler for you and all the kind of resources that you need. But I actually really, um, um, personally really like writing the cases as well it's kind of like a, a journalistic style of writing but it is academically informed if that makes sense so it's also a nice way for you know maybe for young academics to get published as well because it's a much quicker process than um, you know getting published in a journal or something and also you get a you know amazing impact because your case becomes part of a digital collection that people are using all around the world so I mean you can actually have quite a lot of impact um, through that so and I think the case you know, method of teaching, it's really is about, you know, you can make it whatever you want it to be. So you can have whichever role you want to be. It's about decision making. I often teach with them is around creative problem solving and actually, um, you know, that sort of, you know, metacognition. So actually thinking about how you think about things. I mean, there's all sorts of really interesting routes um, into and out of them, but also fundamentally they're about having a more informed voice, I guess, about some of the instances and, and incidents within the fashion system. So if we think about something, you know, in the last few years, for example, we've had Dolce & Gabbana with a couple of terrible, let's just call them a faux pas um, in China. You can actually rehearse that whole kind of incident and analyze it, have these debates around things like cultural appropriation, and then also about crisis management. So you, you know, you can rehearse all of these things um, within you know the, the safety of the case study. I think they're really informative and and a kind of recent development as well as actually encouraging students to write case studies as well, which is is actually fascinating. So I've been using that as an assessment to get you know students to write case studies um, as well because it's a slightly different way of thinking. It really needs you to analyze um, the situation. So I think they're they're really great from all those different angles. Love that. Very interesting, and I think having the students come on board to also write some case studies is really amazing to just see it essentially sort of like 360 picture. So thank you so much for that. So again, I mean, we just touched upon people, you know, interested in moving into the space of fashion education, considering it as a career path. We also you know, know, well, nowadays I come across people who are now interested in this whole area of going into fashion research. So again, writing journal articles, um, being involved in writing reports, um, industry analysis, case studies, and also going into 
journalism as well and I just wanted to know do you have any advice for anyone who would want to go into this space of fashion research again it's still an area that isn't really publicized or glamorized um, in the industry so a lot of people tend to not know what are the steps in order to get there so I don't know if you have any tips for people who maybe have no experience whatsoever yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. I think if you want to go down the sort of very academic route, then obviously being aligned to an academic institution is going to help with that. But even if you're, you know, if you're teaching at, at whatever level, you I think the best fashion education, the best fashion teaching is always research informed anyway. I mean, you're always looking and horizon scanning and seeing what's interesting there. So it's just a question, I think, of taking that a little bit further. Start reading um, you know, published research, find a journal that you like the style of. There's what I always love about the fashion industry is there's so many different aspects to it. And likewise with research. So there's some journals that are extremely, you know, quantitative and stats heavy, that testing hypotheses. There are some journals which are much more sort of, um, you know, cultural studies angle. So I think, it, you know, the, there's a whole range of different academic publications out there. So maybe start to find the things that you enjoy reading and that you can imagine you think, oh, okay, well, I could maybe apply that to a slightly different situation, maybe to a different business. And you can sort of, um, a lot of research papers and journals will actually tell you how the research was carried out. So then you kind of maybe have a model for how you could do that. But I also think you mentioned the sort of industry papers, and I think that's possibly a more accessible area to get into. But I, so I think for that, in a sense as well, it's being curious, uh, developing your understanding of who the key players are and the key processes and then really I suppose finding those hot topics and that's something that you really could probably develop from your own writing and you could just start to have a commentary yourself for example going back to the blog just starting to publish your own thoughts about things um, before you actually reach out and, and try and maybe offer your services to do that to someone but again I think it's one of those things where maybe a, a mentoring opportunity so if there's an organization that you'd like to um, maybe work with or support and maybe you feel like you could give some analysis to them maybe reach out and see if you can arrange something like that but again reading how reports are constructed so we see you know when you have for example business of fashion state of fashion etc and they obviously partner with people like McKinsey but what are the things that they're interested in and then try to sort of see again what appeals to you about that but I think one of the things that's really important for both of each of those things is that you um, develop the ability to create insights. So you're not just presenting a bunch of information, but you're actually saying, what does this mean? So you're having that sort of critical um, view of something. You're not just presenting a bunch of facts or a bunch of information, but you're actually, you know, what does that mean? And that's a, a question, you know, it's the so what question. So if you're doing any writing or you're doing any research, it's the so what, what impact does this have? But I think another very underdeveloped area is actually researching into learning and teaching in fashion. And I mean, there's a bunch of that in North America. There's a bunch of that in Europe, but there's lots of parts of the world where that's really underexplored. So I think that's also a potential actually researching how do people teach and learn fashion in different parts of the world? And that's that's a fascinating subject to look into. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's amazing. So we're coming to an end now with this episode, but I definitely need to pick your brain by asking you one more question. I mean, you've shared really amazing resources with us and also strategies on how people can enter different fields and the best ways to go about it and also with teaching um, as well. So my one thing, my one question, final question is, do you have three sort of like resources or sort of like systems or tools that you use on a daily basis that you just swear by that you think, okay, these are like the core things that I use in order to actually just help me sort of like teach or help me with sort of like projects management and so forth? That's a great question. I would say there's a really good expression, which is fish where the fish are. So I think sometimes people don't feel, for example, with social media that they want to be involved in it. They don't feel like, oh, I'm not really a, you know, an Instagram person or I'm not super interested in Twitter. But actually, if you want to be um, informed, then often 
Twitter is great for academic conversations and debates because a lot of academics are on Twitter, as are a lot of journalists. So you can kind of follow stories and see what's emerging. And I've actually got a lot of great tips um, from academic Twitter. I've been involved with the learning and teaching and higher education chat, and we were lucky enough to have yourself, Frederica, hosting a session. We have our weekly tweet chat, and I've actually picked up lots of tips and actually made friends through that as well. So I think I would say academic Twitter is, is one um, thing that I use. I think, um, let me think, um, I think being curious about a lot of different things. I've done a lot of my research has actually been um, uh, what, a, what a sort of shero of mine calls serendipitous. So I think just being open to things happening anywhere and something just piques your curiosity and you think, I wonder, and let that lead you into an interesting pathway. So I'll give you an example of that. When I was um, traveling in, in Hong Kong, I was riding the mid-levels escalator and I looked to one side and I saw a guy sitting in a window with a sewing machine and a television screen playing a video above him. And I was so curious, I went to investigate and it turned out to be a social enterprise tailors. And I had a fascinating story behind that. And I, you know, I, I actually ended up doing research, visiting their different um, ateliers and writing all about that. So I think being open to things and, and taking advantage of serendipity and just following your instincts, I think, is probably another um, kind of tip. Um, and then maybe just like quite a human thing. And I think that is sort of, you know, listen to your intuition and try to put your energies into positive places that you'd like to put them in. I think as one gets older, it's easier to think about that because you start, I suppose, to think about mortality and how much time you have to do things. So I think just um, trying to listen to your own inner voice and let that let that guide you is probably not exactly a tool, but I think it, is, it could be a tip. <laughs> Love that. But no, honestly, I, I do believe in the um, listening to just essentially that intuity I think it's so important that's for me like that's one thing I literally live by it's so important and I find myself anytime I go against it then I always end up in a situation where I'm like I should have just I shouldn't have done this I should have just listened to myself so I definitely think that those are really interesting and important um things to definitely live by Thank you so much, Natasha. This was like basically a lecture in itself. And I mean, we are so fortunate to have you join us on this podcast and to learn from you. And I definitely do believe that for those listening and for you listening right now, I'm sure that you've literally probably paused this podcast episode um, a few times to make some notes to actually implement certain things within your own careers and practices as well. So Natasha, we have to have you back on because that whole aspect of you talking about how you were able to get your students working with students in Asia, I mean, we, we need to hear about that. And I believe that it will really benefit um, educators on the African continent as well. So thank you so much for your time, Natasha. You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.